If you have a Bible, your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 1 and uh, hold your spot there. Philippians chapter 1 is uh, where we're going to be today. In chapter 1, just kind of moving through the first 11 verses, and then we're going to pull in a few verses from elsewhere in the book of Philippians as well, starting a brand new series today, right, going through the book of Philippians. And so I love preaching through books of the Bible. A lot of times we'll do uh, topical type messages where we'll deal with themes, but then also at other times we'll go through books of Scripture. And uh, so that starts today, moving through these four chapters of the book of Philippians for the weeks to come. As we head towards the end of the year, believe it or not, we're going to be right here in the book of Philippians. So uh, at home, I have this... um I have this box that started out small, and uh, it grew through the years. Uh, it's, it's, I call it, I called it my little Susie box, and in that box is this compilation of um, notes and cards and letters going all the way back even to the time that we were dating. And so since then, when, when Hannah, Drew, and April were born, then uh, added to that box has now become a bigger box of uh, cards and things that they've given me through the years as well. And so it is just stuffed. Every time I have to put something uh, or I put something back in there, I've got to like open the top and just squeeze down stuff and then push it back down in there again. And uh, I mean, I'm talking, we've got, I've got emails in there from when we were dating when I was in seminary and I was in the Raleigh area. She was a nurse here at Memorial in Savannah and uh, we were dating uh, all the way back in the nineties, right? And uh, I mean, a, a whole different era. I mean, back in the nineties and, uh, and they were Emails that she sent to me at klb at juno.com. Anybody have a Juno account back in the day? It was free, by the way. And, um, and so that is why here at our church, everybody's email is their name, but mine's KLB. It's because I've still got that little bit of uh, hanging on to that Juno, those Juno days. And so, uh, so, so when, I, when I think about that, I, it, it causes me to realize today that you know, letter writing is kind of a lost art. People don't write letters like they used to. I mean, I've, I've got letters that my mom wrote me when I was in college, and that was like way back, right, that she wrote with her own hand. And so it's interesting because when you, when you have a letter that somebody has written, I mean, it takes time to do that. You're not whittling that thing out at 90 words a minute, or some can text even faster than that. I mean, you sit down with pen and paper at a table somewhere, and you write that thing out. And, and the thing about a letter is it's incredibly personal. I mean, you can get a sense of a person, you know, just by reading the words on the page and their, their style and the way they write and their, you know, just all of those kinds of things. But a, a letter also, you have the ability, and you can do this with texts and, and uh, emails too, but especially with letters, you can take that thing out and open it up and you can read it all over again, over and over and over. And, and in a sense, writing the letter was a part of the gift itself, right? Because it took time to be able to do that. Well, when you look in the New Testament, there are 27 books in the New Testament. And of those 27 books, 21 of them were written as letters. So roughly three-fourths of the New Testament, at least according to the number of books, were written as letters from a person to either another individual, maybe Timothy or someone, or uh, written to a church, such as the church at Philippi or the church at Corinth. 21 of the 27 letters of, of the books of the New Testament were written specifically as letters. Well, today, as we jump into this series, moving through the book of Philippians, what we're going to find is, is that this is a letter. Now, it's not just an ordinary letter because as the writers were writing, you know, in this case, Paul, some cases it was Peter, but as Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church, the Christians in Philippi, it was not just Paul writing the letter, but it was the Holy Spirit. It was God himself pinning the words to this letter to the point to where we can say it's God's word even to us now 2,000 years later. And so as we read this, understand 
I mean, this is a personal, intensely personal letter that Paul would write. He's in prison. He is in a Roman prison as he pins the words to this, maybe chained to a wall in this Roman prison, but he has somehow, he has pen and papyrus, right? And he's pinning the words that we have. And this is a small miracle that you have uh, um, right there in front of you, sitting on your lap. You have the very words that Paul wrote in these four short chapters that are as applicable to us today as they were 2,000 years ago on the day that he wrote it. It's challenging. Man, this, is a, this is a book that, that we're going to see is going to pull out some things that we need to hear in our walks with God. And not just helpful for, for the original hearers, but for us as well. So, so Paul wrote this to, to the church in Philippi. I want to give a little bit of history, and I don't want you to gloss over. I remember what it was like for me in history class, and uh, I, don't want to, I don't want this to sound historical, but to really understand this book, I mean, we got to go back to a little bit of the history. And so let's just see what the setting is specifically for this letter. Paul is writing it. Again, he's in a Roman prison, more than likely a Roman prison, uh, definitely in prison. And he's writing to the church of the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi was, was a part of the Roman Empire as Paul wrote this letter. Philippi was actually a Roman colony. It was located on a, uh, on a roadway called the Ignatian Way, the Via Ignatia, which 650, 700 miles long, this particular roadway connected the Roman Empire in Rome to its far eastern segments of which Philippi was a part. This was a thoroughfare. There would have been numerous travelers traveling right through Philippi on a regular basis, more than likely. There was a seaport 10 miles away at Neapolis. And what archaeologists have uncovered is that the city of Philippi, more than likely based on what they've unearthed, which is amazing, you can go online and Google the, many of the original spaces uh, from 2,000 years ago, they estimate it was probably a city of 10,000 to 20,000 people. Not a large city in the grand scheme of things, 10,000 to 20,000 people. But the interesting thing about the city of Philippi was that it was a Roman colony, now, that might not mean a whole lot to you, but it's going to play into our understanding of the book of Philippians. Here's the significance of that. As a Roman colony, it wasn't just another city in the Roman Empire. As a Roman colony, the city of Philippi was modeled after the city of Rome. It was like a little miniature Rome there in Philippi, this little city of 10 to 20,000 people. They would have, it would have had monuments all throughout the city to the false gods of Egypt, to the false gods of Greece, to the false gods of Roman culture. You would have seen these monuments scattered all throughout the city. There were also Roman baths. Maybe you remember studying those whenever you were in school. There was a, a, a public restroom, right, that has been unearthed, right, that was, would have been um, uh, incredibly advanced in its day, particularly. Uh, this Roman colony, Philippi, had that. There would have been uh, an arena. There would have been a marketplace. In fact, in the, uh, in the theater, they would have had gladiator conflicts, just like they did in the city of Rome. There was a forum. I mean, this would have been like being in Rome, to be in Philippi in, in, in Paul's day in the first century. It was a Roman colony. Every person who was there of a Roman citizen carried a certain amount of privilege as a part, not just of the Roman Empire, but as one who lived in this particular colony. Now, back behind that, we need to go a little further in the Wayback Machine. Here's where we're really going to go historical, okay? So don't gloss over on me here. little history lesson, but it's really going to add some flavor to the book of Philippians. So let's go back to the year 44 BC, all right? About a hundred years before Paul wrote this letter that we hold as the book of Philippians. 44 BC, say 44 BC. 
Boy, that was a lot of enthusiasm. That reminds me of history class, 10th grade. Just Bueller, Bueller. All right, 44 B.C. Say 44 B.C. Man, you guys are history lovers. I can tell already. And so in 44 B.C., there was a little guy named Julius Caesar who lived. Say Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar. If you can't remember his name, just think Little Caesars, okay? Pizza, pizza. So now you're, now you're a little more awake than you were earlier. 44 BC, Julius Caesar was a pivotal figure in, uh, in the Roman Empire for this reason. Julius Caesar, he wanted to kind of shake things up a bit. Whenever he was alive in 44 BC, Rome was not an empire. Rome was a republic. Julius Caesar, a couple of years prior, had named himself the dictator. Try this at work tomorrow when you go into work. Name yourself the CEO. Name yourself the president of the company. Let me know how that works out for you. For Julius Caesar, it didn't work out real well. He had named himself the dictator of the Roman Republic a couple of years prior to 44 BC. And, uh, and not only that, he had even ramped it up a little further and he'd said, I'm not just the dictator, I'm the dictator for the rest of my life. It would be a lot shorter than he thought it would be. See, there were some people that weren't so pleased about his decision to name himself the dictator and to try to redirect the Roman Republic in a different direction. Two of those men were men by the name of Cassius and Brutus. Cassius and Brutus, along with another group of people, wanted Rome to remain a republic. And so they ultimately, along with some others, assassinated Julius Caesar in 44 BC on the Ides of March. And Julius Caesar's reign came to an end along with his life. Moved two years later, 42 BC. In 42 BC, Julius Caesar's son, his name was Octavian, he was an adopted son. Julius Caesar's son, Octavian, along with a man named Mark Antony, decided to avenge Octavian's father's death. So they amassed their forces. And they go to battle against Cassius and Brutus, the ones largely responsible for Julius Caesar's assassination. They get their forces together. It's 42, year, uh, 42 BC, two years after Julius Caesar's death. Octavian, Mark Antony, by the way, did I mention they didn't want Rome to be a republic? They wanted it to be an empire with an emperor. They amassed their forces just west of a city called Philippi in the plains of Philippi. And in 42 BC, they go to war. And what is at stake is the direction that Rome would then go. Would it remain a republic? Would it become an empire with an emperor? Octavian, Mark Antony go up against Cassius, Brutus, and their forces. They go to battle outside of Philippi. Mark Antony and Octavian are victorious. They win. It's one of the most pivotal battles, one of the most pivotal moments, actually, for what would later become the Roman Empire because Roman t- uh, Rome <clears throat> took a giant step towards empire status as a result of that battle. 11 years later, 31, there, 31 BC, there would be another battle called the Battle of Actium. Octavian, Julius Caesar's son, would now go to battle against Mark Antony. They had been partners in war to defeat Cassius and Brutus. 11 years later, 31 BC, now they're going at it. Octavian would defeat Mark Antony, and he would ultimately be declared in 31 BC by the Roman Senate to be the emperor. Rome had now entered a new day. It was an empire whose reach would extend further than anyone likely could have imagined. It would not be run as a republic. It would be run as, uh, by an emperor. And by the way, <clears throat> it would be that Roman Senate that would ultimately give Octavian a new name, a name that you would know of him a little bit more, probably more, in a more familiar way, that being Caesar Augustus. 
So when you get to Luke chapter 2 and you read of this census where a couple named Joseph and Mary would enter the city of Bethlehem because there was a census in the days of Caesar Augustus, it's that Caesar Augustus. Formerly known as Octavian, the son of Julius Caesar, he would reign for 40 years. He would declare Philippi to be a Roman colony, and as I've described, a lot of that would be as a result of his influence in the city of Philippi. But there's another incredibly significant piece of information about Caesar Augustus, Octavian, that whenever he would become emperor of now the Roman Empire, he would also be considered, quote, the worshipped one. It would be the emperor in Roman Empire culture that would be worshipped by the people. In fact, by the time that he would become emperor, his father, Julius Caesar, had been treated virtually as deity, which meant that Caesar Augustus would be not just treated as the worshipped one, but also considered the son of God. So imagine what it was like about 80 years later in the year 50 AD, when an apostle by the name of Paul rolls into town. And Paul rolls into the city of Philippi, this miniature Rome, complete with its forum and complete with its Roman baths and complete with its underground sewer system, complete with its, de- uh, uh, with its monuments to the false deities of Egypt and Greek culture and Roman culture, complete with an emperor now, no longer, Jew- uh, no longer Caesar Augustus. But imagine what it was like when Paul would roll into town in a culture where the emperor was worshipped as God, when he comes in with a message of a new kingdom and a new king, and as we'll read later in Philippians 2, saying that at the name of Jesus, not Caesar, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. It wasn't like him showing up to Sunday school saying, hey, let me just share a little bit about what God has done for me this week, and everybody's saying, oh, that's wonderful, Paul. No, this, this was in the midst of the battle. This is Paul with the message of the gospel rolling into the city of Philippi in the year 50 A.D., And he ultimately shares the gospel. And what would happen in 50 AD, here's the cool thing, you can read it as it unfolded in Acts chapter 16 if you want to. It's where the church in Philippi would be born. Paul rolls into town and he shares the gospel with a little Bible study taking place outside the city of Philippi. There's a group of women out there, literally, I don't know if they had a van, but they were down by the river, right? And they were studying the Bible. And as that Bible study unfolds, Paul shows up and he shares the message of the gospel and he tells them about Jesus. And right there, the first church in, this, in, in, in what we would now call Europe is, is basically birth. And the first follower of Jesus that we have recorded would be a woman named Lydia, a wealthy woman who sold purple fabric. Doesn't mean much to you. She would have likely been very wealthy in her culture. She places her faith in Jesus. That's 50 A.D. Eleven years later, maybe a dozen, around 61, 62 A.D., Paul writes a letter to this church. We have it as the book of Philippians. And he writes this letter to a church of believers in a little town of ten to 20,000 people. That's a, that's a Roman colony considered a little, a little Rome who worships their emperor as God. And he comes in with this message, not just of the gospel, but a letter of encouragement to this church as they try to live out the gospel in this very hostile segment of the world to the name of Jesus. It's an interesting letter because when you read it in that context, it's not just another letter in the Bible. 
But now understanding the context, you realize that there was an awful lot at stake that this church could have easily gone under as they sought to live out their faith in the midst of the Roman Empire. In this city, this little miniature Rome, the city of Philippi, they could have easily given up. They could have easily thrown in the towel. They could have easily watered down the message. I'm sure many of them knew people that would have died for their faith and maybe had already died for the faith. And yet Paul writes them this letter of encouragement, this letter of Philippians, four simple chapters that has everything to do with the message of the gospel. He's going to talk about humility. He's going to talk about unity. He's going to talk about furthering the gospel, as we'll see today. And he's going to talk about joy. So let's go ahead and jump in. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to deal with the first 11 verses today. And throughout a good part of the remainder of this year, we're going to continue to make our way through the book of Philippians. So let's just start today. Chapter 1, verse 1, moving down through verse 11. We're going to pull out two things, I think, of significance this morning as we begin this series in the book of Philippians. So Paul, in chapter 1, verse 1, simply writes, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. All right, so this is somewhat of a customary greeting for Paul. This is the start of the letter. Now, it may not mean much to you, but there is a lot packed into verse 1. And verse 2, as we're going to see in just a second as well. There's a whole lot packed in here. Paul is saying to them, first of all, he writes letter to the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. Those saints are a reference, not to saints that you may think of that have, you know, little statues made of them or little pendants made. It's not that, but rather he's referring as elsewhere in the New Testament, he's referring to those who are followers of Jesus. That for those who give their lives to Jesus, you included, by the way, you're considered biblically as a saint, right? It doesn't mean that you live a perfect life. What it means is, is that God has bestowed on you all of the righteousness of Jesus because of your faith in Christ. And so Paul uses this term. He says, I write this letter to the saints in Christ Jesus. But then he mentions two different leadership groups, the overseers referencing the pastors and the deacons. So what does this tell us about this church? Remember, Paul went there to Philippi in 50 AD, remember? And and he shared the gospel. Lydia got saved. A little church was birthed. And now it's 11, maybe 12 years later, he's writing this letter. Well, in that dozen years, the church has undoubtedly grown. The church has undoubtedly begun to mature, right? To the point to where in the city of Philippi, 10 or or 20,000 people there in the city, this church has grown to the point to where now they have a leadership structure. They have pastors, they have deacons that are in place now. This church is growing, they're maturing, they're adding, right? They're, They're making a difference, we can assume, there in the city of Philippi. And Paul mentions that I write this letter to all the saints, to all the overseers, to all the deacons, everybody in the church, I'm writing this letter. And he refers to himself, remember he's in prison, not sure if Timothy is in prison with him or if Timothy is close enough to be an encouragement to him. Regardless, Paul says that he and Timothy are writing this letter and he refers to them, to themselves as bondservants of Christ Jesus, bondservants. It's the Greek word douloi. If we could all be Greek scholars for a moment and read this in the Greek language, it's that Greek word douloi. We translate it here as bondservants, it, it, it really literally means slaves, slaves of Christ. Now remember, for us in our nation's history, there is this horrible segment of time where slavery took place in our country. This would have been after, obviously, Paul wrote this letter 2,000 years ago. When they mentioned slavery in the New Testament, it, it doesn't mean that it was a good thing. It was a real thing that unfolded in this part of history 2,000 years ago, different than our connotation when we read in history of our own nation's experience with history, different. 
but still nonetheless slavery. Paul uses this term to paint this vivid picture, this image where he says for he and for Timothy and really for all of us as believers understand this, that we in a very real sense are bond servants. We are slaves of the Lord Jesus. Now he's not a taskmaster that, 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 that treats us in mean fashion. He's not a taskmaster that is unfair to us. He deals with us from a perspective of grace and mercy and, and peace and joy and love, right? That's how he deals with us. But at the end of the day, he's God and we're not. We're under his reign. He's the one who calls the shots. He's Lord. He's master. He's savior, right? We're the ones who come in under his lead. And so Paul uses really vivid image, imagery here to paint this picture that we, he and Timothy, and all of us are bond servants of the Lord Jesus. And so he, he, he writes this letter. He starts the very first part of it. He says, this is who we are. And in so many words, he's saying, this is also who you are in Christ. You are a bond servant called to serve him. He's not here to serve your needs, though he does. You're here to serve him him and to follow his lead. And he writes this to the whole church. Verse two, he says to them, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is interesting because pretty much every letter that Paul writes, he says this somewhere in the letter, he says, grace to you and peace. Always in that order. He never says somewhere else in one of his letters in the new Testament, peace and grace to you. It's always in this order, grace and peace. I think it's that way for a reason, because when you think about it, uh, you can't have peace without first having grace, right? There are a lot of people in this world, maybe even for you, uh, may, maybe for you even today, you can think about a time recently when you've made a decision to try to find peace in your life, to try to somehow fabricate peace in your life. Maybe you've started a new relationship. Maybe you pursued a different career. Maybe you moved to a new location. M- maybe you, uh, y- you tried to make some changes in your life. Maybe you turned to a bottle. Maybe you turned to something else to try to ease the pain of your life. You just tried to search for peace. And yet what you found was that peace would last for a little while. I have no idea why this is doing it. Let me, let me just get a handheld if you don't mind. And, um, and, and so just lock it. You're, you're good at this, right? You can listen. You're not going to let a measly little crackle thing distract you like it does me. <clears throat> and so maybe for you, as you've searched for peace, here's what you found. And you found it maybe the hard way. That the peace that the world offers is like a thin veneer. Awesome. There we go. Look at that. The beauty of technology. You thought you were getting out of church early. No, no, my friend. We're going TBN style up here now. We got the handheld. Who knows? I might break into a song, go running around the building. Who knows? Highly unlikely, but anyway. And so whenever we think about peace, here's the thing, that the world offers a peace. Jesus understood this, right? He said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Jesus understood that the world has a, has a type of a peace that it offers, much of what I just described. But here's the problem. This table up here is not solid wood. It's veneer over pressed wood, right? You subject this table to, table to high heat. You subject this table to water, and it's going to crumble like nobody's business, right? It's because of the veneer. This veneer will peel away to show what it truly is uh, at its core, and it's not good. The peace that the world offers, whether it's through a new relationship or a new job or a new pursuit, or I'm going to try to change this, or I'm going to try to meet up with this person, whatever it may be, that kind of peace may last for a season, but it is a veneer. It is not a lasting peace. The peace that Jesus offers is a peace that cannot be forfeited, cannot be taken away, and it only comes first when we taste of the grace of God that comes through that relationship with Jesus. And so Paul writes, grace and peace to you. Listen, man, we're in the first two verses. This makes me feel like a knucklehead when I write a letter. Hope this letter finds you well. 
days are hot and humid in Savannah, right? That's the way I start my letters. Paul, like, preaches, you know, the whole, I mean, like, deep doctrine here in the first two verses of the book of Philippians. Verse 3 through, through verse 5, take a look at what it says here. Paul continues, he says, I thank my God, he says to the Philippian believers, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Many would say that the church at Philippi was Paul's favorite church. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with, you, with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul loved this church. Paul says this church had partnered with him in the gospel. Two times at least already, they had sent a financial gift to Paul. In fact, this letter, the book of Philippians, part of the backstory to the occasion of this letter was that they had also, Paul had received another financial gift from this church delivered by a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was out of this church, delivered the financial gift to Paul. Paul would send this letter more than likely back to the church as his thank you and as his encouragement to them through that same man, Epaphroditus. I mean, he had a deep love for this church to the point to where he says, whenever I think of you, whenever I pray for you, this is what I pray. And one of the things he says in verse 5, he says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, here's a principle here that I want to pull out. The principle is this, that every single believer, including us, 2,000 years later, are called to participate in furthering the message of the gospel. Every single one of us. It's not just something that pastors do. It's not something that evangelists solely do. It's not just something for the missionaries to do. Every single one of us who've given our lives to Jesus, if you've made that decision to give your life to Christ, listen, you are on the front lines just like all the rest of us. You are called to ultimately participate in furthering the gospel. Remember who Paul wrote the letter to. He didn't write it to just the overseers, the pastors, and the deacons. He wrote it to the whole shooting match, right? He wrote it to, to the entire church, to all the saints in the church in Philippi. And he says to them, he thanks them for what they had done to participate in furthering the gospel. Now, churches do that all the time. Our church participates in furthering the gospel. If you give here in our church, you help us to do ministry uh, uh, in Cuba because we've sent funds down there to Cuba to the church at Jellibert Baptist many, many times. We've sent teams down there six times, I think, now over the past seven years or so. Uh, up until COVID came, we're sending a team, we expect, next fall as well in 2023. We've also done the same in the Philippines since 2005. Up until COVID came, we would send teams down there every single year. We send funds down there as well to help further the gospel in the Philippines. You, through your giving, help to support a couple, Matthew and Rachel Woods, who serve with Wycliffe Bible Translators in Papua New Guinea. Anybody ever been to Papua New Guinea? I don't think so. Not me. Matthew, Rachel Woods are. You're there in a sense because you partner with them in furthering the gospel. He works with Bible translation there. That's what they do. And they help to translate the language of the, of the Bible, the New Testament specifically, into the language of the people who live there in Papua New Guinea. It's furthering the gospel. We serve here as a church with the Baptist Center. We serve with His Love Ministries, getting the gospel into the jail system and the nursing homes. We serve with Coastal Jail Ministries here locally. I mean, we, we as a church help to further the gospel. But here's the thing. Paul says it's an effort for every single one of us. 
And here's what that means. Here's where the rubber hits the road. That when you go to work tomorrow and you log in, you clock in for your work on a Monday morning, you as a follower of Jesus are also called in that space to further and to advance the message of the gospel. We're called to advance the message of the gospel in our conversations, right? That there are going to be people in the locker room. There are going to be people standing out in the break room, right? Regardless of whether you're on a campus or in the workplace. And they're going to be talking all kind of goofball stuff that doesn't honor the Lord, right? And we have a decision to make here. Am I going to stand for the gospel? It doesn't mean we go full-blown Billy Graham on them right there necessarily and start preaching. But it does mean that we're going to represent a different kingdom and a different king. And we're going to further the gospel through the way that we speak, through the way that we live. We do that in the workplace. We do that in our neighborhoods. We do that in the places where we go. When we serve here in this church, whether it's preschool, children, students, choir, holding a door, lead a Bible study, whatever it may be, we do it ultimately not just to fill a spot, but to ultimately further the message of the gospel. Paul says that in every area of our lives, part of the call of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to further the message of the gospel. Now, let me give you an interesting illustration here right out of Philippians chapter 4. Look at what it says here. Paul, Paul goes a little personal here in chapter 4. And he offers correction, not to the church at large, to, but to two people in the church. And I want you to see the tie in here. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 and verse 3. He says, I urge Eodia, chapter 4, verse 2, I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. He doesn't tell what the issue was. These were two women that were in the church there in Philippi, and they are obviously living in something other than harmony and unity. I don't know if one of them rooted for Philippi and the other for Philippi State. I don't know what the issue was right? I don't know what the problem was. I don't know if they got sideways at a family reunion or what the deal was. Paul doesn't tell us, right? But they are not living in harmony. And he says, he says to them, I urge you, he knew they'd be hearing this letter when Epaphroditus delivered it. He knew it would be read publicly. He knew they would hear this. And he says, I urge you to live in harmony in the Lord. Verse three, he says, indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women. He says this to the, to, to, to the people there. He says, to help these women who shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. They've been right there by my side, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul says, you got to deal with this. I mean, you can't be in disunity one with the other. And the picture, I heard Tony Evans mention this verse in this way. He said, in the same way, in the city of Rome, Whenever the contest would take place where Nero would persecute Christians and he'd throw them on the floor of the theater and he would, un he would unleash the, the wild uh, uh, lions and the wild beasts, right? And the people would flood into the, to the theater in Rome to watch this unfold. And they'd sit up there with their drinks in the stands and they would laugh and they would mock the Christians on the floor of the theater as they tried to, to, to perhaps evade being just mauled by these wild animals. But it seems to paint the same picture. Paul is saying, listen, you two women who represent in a gospel of peace and a gospel of joy and a gospel of humility and a gospel of, of, of unity. He said, you can't tear each other apart like this because the world, those 10 or 20,000 people elsewhere in Philippi are going to look at you and you're going to be a laughing stock. Well, this is what Jesus is. This is what the church is all about. But you can't even get along with one another and you telling me about a God of peace. And so Paul says, further the gospel even in your relationships, live in a way that advances the gospel. Let me ask you a question. When you look at the different components of your life, workplace, neighborhood, family, your relationships, your conversations, everything, 
Would you say that your life is lived intentionally in a way for the purpose of furthering the gospel? Or is there an element of your life that is confusing to a lost world when it comes to embracing the gospel because they hear one thing from the Bible and they see something different in those who claim to follow it? See, this, this gets a little close to home, doesn't it? <laughs> because there are times in my life where I would have to say honestly that my actions, my words don't further the gospel. It's a challenge that Paul issues to the believers in Corinth that on one layer they were called to partner, to participate in furthering the message of the gospel. Verse 6, back in chapter 1 again, Philippians 1 verse 6. He says, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I love this verse. Have you ever been in a place in your Christian life, Christian, where you felt like, you know what, I've blown it again. I mean, I, I don't know why God listens to my prayers. I don't know why he has anything to do with me. You ever been in a place like that in your Christian life where you're just like, why don't he just take me? Why, he just needs to zap me right here, right now, because I feel about this big, right? I don't add anything to the kingdom. I don't know why he loves me. I just keep blowing it. I just keep saying stuff I shouldn't say or doing stuff I shouldn't do. You know, I don't know that I'm ever going to be who God wants me to be. You ever been to that place? Probably so. If not, you haven't been a Christian quite long enough yet, right? What Paul says here, and I love this, and I'm so glad that this isn't just Paul writing this, but it's God himself. He says, I'm confident. This is what I'm confident of. I promise you, he says, that he who began a good work in you, that means the day that you gave your life to Jesus, when that good work started, the same one who saved you is the same one who is going to mold, shape, and perfect you until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, he's not going to give up on you. And he is going to be constantly molding you and shaping you and, and, and training you and growing you. But here's the thing. Principle number two, right? Paul would say first that every believer is called to partner with, with, with pursuing and, and, and furthering the gospel. Principle number two, every believer also is called to partner with God as he seeks to grow us as Christians. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day. He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Here's what this looks like. Maybe you need a little patience in your life. And it's as though God says, all right, this day, this week, this month, this year, this decade, depending on how hard patience is for you, he says, we're going to work on some patience. And you have a decision to make as God sets to work to mold and shape you in the area of patience. Am I going to partner with him and let him change me? Or am I going to resist him and push him away? Oh, well, you know, God, I, I'm, I'm hard driven, right? I got to be hard driving in my workplace, right? Because all those people who work under my leadership, right? This may be what you're thinking. I can't afford to be patient with them because they're just not going to get the work done. I can't afford to be patient. Oh, when I get home, I can't be patient, right? I got to train them kids up and I got to, I got to sit in. I can't be patient sitting around waiting on stuff. By the way, you're the one who made me this way, God. Uh, you know, I can't be patient. And God says, no, you're going to be patient. Let's work. And you can either push him away or he can say, okay, God. Make me who you want me to be. And it may not be patience. It may be learning forgiveness. It may not be patience or forgiveness. It may be learning humility. It may be learning some other lesson in life that makes us more like Jesus. But as God works, right, we submit, we surrender. Why? Because we're slaves. We're bond slaves. He's the leader. We're not. We submit. We surrender. We come in line under his authority. And as he molds us and shapes us and we, we submit and surrender, here's what we're doing. We're partnering with him 
as he grows us, Romans 8, 29, into the image of Jesus, he conforms us. Paul says, don't forget, because it's going to get discouraging sometimes that he who started this is going to finish it. So don't push him away. (laughs) You work with him. Verse 7, Paul says, it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment, remember he's in a Roman cell, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. We are all in this together. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is Paul praying for? Look at what it says again, those last couple of verses. Let's go back to verse 9 if we can. Look at what he says in verse 9. This is what he prays. He says, I want you to have love in your life. I want you to have knowledge of who God is in your life. I want you to add to that knowledge discernment or wisdom. Wisdom is a right application of knowledge. That's what wisdom is. It's not just knowing a bunch of stuff. It's knowing what to do with it. He says, I want you to be sincere. I want you to be blameless, right? I want you to be authentic. At the end in verse 11, he says, I want there to be a fruit of righteousness in your life. I want you to bear fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I want all that stuff in your your life. This is what I pray for for you, Philippian Christians, that as you surrender in the midst of a godless city that worships the emperor of the empire in whose, uh, under whose reign you live, in that city, I want you to live as shining lights of the gospel, pushing it further than when you received it and letting God mold and shape you as you participate with him. As he grows you into the image of his son. Hey, what are you doing today, Christian, 2,000 years later in a similar godless culture to further the gospel through your life? How important is it? And what are you doing to say, Lord, here I am, your bondservant. Mold and shape me into who you want me to be. Let's pray. For some of you, you remember the day you gave your life to Christ. You remember the day that the good work began. And you've seen God mold and shape you through those days. But you also remember times in your life, like I can, of when you weren't so much on the anvil (laughs) to say, Lord, do with me whatever you want. Maybe there were seasons of your life where you resisted the change that he wanted to bring. Maybe even right now that's where you are. And today's a great time to say, Lord, I want to be that living sacrifice Romans 12 speaks of. I want you to mold and shape and change me. I want to partner with you as you grow and mature me in my Christian life. You know, maybe right now is a great time to sort of give God the the freedom to do that. Not that he needs your permission, but to say, Lord, I want to partner with you as you mold and shape me. Help me to do that. Others of you may say, you know, Lord, I haven't really been much of a representative of you where I work or where I live or on the team that I play on or in the school where I go or the places that I navigate. But, Lord, I, I really I want to live my life to further the gospel. Lord, would you give me boldness and help me to do that? Maybe that's a prayer you need to pray today. And maybe for others, what you really think of in this whole message is verse 2, the whole grace and peace thing. And maybe you say, you know what, Brooks, I don't have a lot of that peace that you've talked about. And I've, I've looked a lot of places to find it. And, man, if, I, if there was a price tag on it, I'd pay it because I want peace in my life. 
you know, for you, the first step may be not to try to take another shot in the dark to find peace, but to turn to the only one who can give it, the very Prince of Peace, Jesus, and to taste his grace, right? That when you say, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me of all my sin? To just feel that sense of forgiveness that, that he gives to you as he pours his grace into your life. And maybe for you, the decision today is to say, Jesus, would you forgive me? And would you take over? And you know what? He'll do it. Lord, your reign is a reminder that you're in control. Not a one of us right now can go to an app to turn it off. Lord, you sent this rain. And it reminds us that you're a God who's in charge of all things. Lord, far better for us in our lives when we quit trying to resist you and mold you into who we want you to be. And when we start surrendering to you and let you change us into who you want us to be. And so God, all over this place today, I pray that we're doing that. We're surrendering ourselves to Jesus. Maybe we've known you for years. But Lord, it's a really, a really good time to just remind ourselves that we are your bondservants. And Lord, we thank you that you're always a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love to us. Never unjust, never hateful, never mean. God, for those who don't know Jesus, may today be the day they give their lives to you, Lord. Bless us as we seek to live this out this week to further the gospel and to follow your lead. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.